This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I've been told by another Russian uh, officer we were lucky enough, by the look of it, to be left a very early satellite navigation system, which he believes in 1994 was still pretty much top secret and shouldn't have been left on board. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 35 of Cold War Conversations just like to say a quick thanks to Wayne Sherwood who left another five-star review on iTunes. Your reviews on iTunes or alternative podcast platforms as well as your posts on social media really help to raise the profile and help us get new guests so that's very much appreciated. Today we talk with John Sutton who owns a Foxtrot class Soviet submarine moored in the middle of the River Medway in Kent in the UK. This may seem an unlikely location for a Soviet submarine, but John tells an interesting story of its history and how he acquired it. However, before we go further, I'd like to thank all our Patreons who donate monthly to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras. Now, you might wonder, what is this Patreon stuff I always go on about? In short, it's a way for you to help fund further podcasts. All I'm asking is, if you enjoy the podcast, to agree to pay as much as you can afford each month. You can cancel at any time, and your amount can be as little as a dollar or a pound. But it all really helps to keep us broadcasting and expanding the show. To find out more, just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. So back to today's episode. After viewing some of the photos of the submarine listing in the river, I did have some trepidation as I boarded the fast javelin train at London St Pancras. And within 30 minutes, I was in Stroud and I could see across the Medway the low silhouette of the Foxtrot submarine. We joined the interview with John and I aboard his small launch in the middle of the River Medway. Right, today is a Cold War Conversations first. It's a waterborne interview. Um, I'm down in Kent uh, on the River Medway. It's uh, an overcast day in November um, and we're in Stroud and I have with me John Sutton who has a rather unusual acquisition which is a Foxtrot class Soviet submarine and we're just out in the middle of the Medway now motoring towards the, uh, the sub 
there'll be photos on the show notes page it's starting to uh, loom ahead this uh, foxtrot class submarine so john how long have you had this submarine uh we obtained it about 2000 in the year 2000 that's 18 years it's gone quick (laughs) and have you a particular interest in the cold war not at the time, I have now, but at the time when uh, we obtained it, it wasn't because it was from the Cold War, it just could be thought it was uh, quite an exciting thing. And have you had many? Have you had any of the original crew come to visit? None of the original crew came with, when I'm on it, but when it first came to London, the captain at the time, uh, he came with it uh, as part of a promotional exercise, I think. He came with it to London on the tug. Right. But I've never seen any other crew since then. And have you had various submariners come to uh, have a look? Yeah, we, we had submariners from the British Navy, the American Navy, and the Soviet submariners as well. From other submarines have come on have a look. Yeah. 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 And what have they made of it in terms of differences between the sort of US UK submarines? Uh, the the UK submarines and the commander we had on board thought it was completely different. And I was slightly surprised that he didn't have a clue what a Russian submarine looked like inside. You know. I thought there would have been James Bond crawling over every Russian submarine there was doing plans and yeah. getting information for our navies to look at, but it seems he had no idea what it looked like inside, and uh, right. he was as intrigued as any normal first-time visitor. You know, yeah. uh, the American guy that came on the submariner, he thought it was uh, out of date, you know, and American ones are flashier and better, of course, you know, <laughs> you know like Mustangs. Um, and then the Russian guy came on, just thought it was like his. Uh, day job come back again you know, he's he's just used to it you know yeah so he's home from home home from home i don't i think he was quite happy to get off again it something reminded flashbacks maybe i don't know but uh, yeah. he was happy to leave but the most surprising was the british commander who'd uh, never been inside a russian submarine and was he himself was surprised at how the, the layout was and he felt wasn't very practical you know the layout yeah and when was this one built 67 was it built yeah. and, and was that one of the last ones to be built or was that the middle of its uh, no they carried on building foxtrots after that uh, went on for about another three or four years I think the foxtrots possibly a little bit longer uh, before they were then sort of pensioned off and they came out with a new model which I think was a Tango at the time I think they came out with that after this OK, well, we're coming up to the uh, sub now, so I'm going to uh, stop recording so I have all hands free uh, to board. I'm now standing on the deck of the B-49 Foxtrot-class submarine while John unlocks the entrance. And without having seen anything larger than a World War II German U-boat, the Foxtrot appears to be somewhat longer. It's 302 feet long and 25 feet at its widest with a draft of 17 feet i'm now walking past the conning tower to the aft end of the boat being very careful as there's no handrail on this section and a dip in the river medway is particularly uninviting at this time of year The aft end of the boat is tapering away as I walk towards it and this is where the engine room and the aft torpedo room is located beneath my feet. And just beyond the loading entrance for the aft torpedo room I can see one of the two escape hatches. 
that would have been used should disaster have struck the submarine. There will be loads of photos on the show notes um, detailing these features, so please do visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 35. Now, beyond the aft end of the submarine, I can see the water of the Medway flowing towards the North Sea, and just around the next bend is the historical naval base at Chatham and the scene of one of the Royal Navy's worst defeats, which was by the Dutch in the 17th century. But for those of you of uh, Cold War interest, there is another Cold War submarine there. Um, This one is Her Majesty's submarine Ocelot, which is an Oberon-class submarine, and was the last Royal Navy warship to be built at Chatham in 1962. I've yet to pay a visit, so uh, stay tuned for a podcast on that one. So, turning around, I am now making my way back to the forward end of the boat, where John is well on his way through multiple, um, all that I can describe as enormous padlocks and chains that protect the visitor entrance. So, we will be entering the submarine shortly. Comrades, this is your captain. It is an honour to speak to you today, and I'm honoured to be sailing with you on the maiden voyage of our motherland's most recent achievement. And once more... Play our dangerous game. A game of chess against our old adversary, the American Navy. We will pass through the American patrols, pass their sonar nets, and lay off their largest city and listen to their rock and roll while we conduct missile drills. A great day, comrades. We sail into history. Um, it's very ghostly in here. We have a, a bit of a problem with the power, which uh, is making it much more atmospheric as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is very spooky. Halloween, I think it's 31st of October. Well, yeah, there you go. Very apt. We're just walking through the officers' quarters at the moment. Um, you were saying about the commissar, John. Yes, obviously on submarines they all had a, a commissar to make sure that the communist ideal was followed and nobody was wavering. So his his bunk, or his room if you like, is just adjacent down there to the engineer's cabin. And we uh, all saw what happened to the commissar on Hunt for Red October. Exactly. I don't think that happened on this one, but uh, I'm sure that he was a much-loved man, and I'm not sure that's true, but that's what they would say. So who who else had specific quarters on this on this boat? Well, just the officers, you know, so okay. and the captain. The captain had his own special bunk, but the officers had their own quarters, and they shared them, the majority of them. Right. Um, whereas the ratings, they only had flat beds, uh, 26 in the rear torpedo room. Right. Uh, which were like hot bunking. And how many officers were there on this? Uh, 24. 24 officers. High percentage of officers to men. I think it, from what I understand that the the idea behind that is 
if you joined the submarine service, you could progress quite quickly, as opposed to joining the surface, surface navy. They didn't have as many officers to men, so there's a good chance you could get higher up the ladder quickly. And I think at the same time that the food was better. So yeah, used to feed them well. There's another temptation to come on submarines. You know. Well, you showed me the uh, kitchen. It seems absolutely tiny to serve something like 76 men, I think you said. Yes, it's definitely not from Ikea, is it? It's, uh, <laughs> it's tiny and it's 76 men, I think 76, and they would feed, feed them three or four times a day. They treat them well. But, you know, I mean, the, the living conditions in that kitchen must be horrendous. It's about, it's about a metre by a metre. I don't know. It's not very big, is it? Yeah, it's absolutely tiny. And I think I've probably banged my head about half a dozen times just in the walking backwards and forwards. But, uh, okay, let's... Uh, just coming out of the radio room, yeah. That's the radio room. They uh, used to have a steel door. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. In the event that the Commissar felt that uh, things were going wrong on board, he could lock himself in and then radio in to Moscow. I don't know what they would have done. They wouldn't have come and got yeah. him. But uh, And presumably, if they were submerged, he wouldn't be able to radio at all anyway. Uh, no. They had radio telephone, but uh, that would only be for local ships. I think contacted them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they wouldn't have been contacting many people when he submerged, I don't think. And this is all the original equipment here on the boat? Yeah, everything's original in here. We haven't taken anything out. It's pretty much as it left Russia, I think. Maybe a few bits missing, but nothing that we've taken off, uh, including the posters and the cigarette packets and the old boots in the cabins, you know, they all they were left on board. It was as if they all just l- picked their bag up and walked off, and that was it, you know. So it's almost like the Mary Celeste of it's, submarines. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, tins of food lying around in the freezers below wow. us. Yeah. Odd, odd bits of things, you know, that yeah. they left. Did they leave any beer or anything? Uh, no beer, no wine, which is probably uh, typically Russian. They wouldn't have left any alcohol behind or cigarettes, just empty packets and empty cans. To the next compartment now will be the central control room. Okay, great. Getting to be a bit of a dab hand at getting through these now. Famous last words. One uh, interesting thing I learned about the central control room on here compared to a, a British submarine. From a, We had a British uh, submarine commander on from the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And he was really surprised at how it's compartmentalized, even in the control room. So you've got the, um, behind you is the torpedo firing computer and department, if you like. Sonar, you've got the map reading room, all separate. So you can't actually see the men. But on British submarines, the, the way they work is open space so that yeah. the captain can look at anybody at any time and say, uh, or give me an answer, you know. Yeah. But on here, for some reason, they've tucked them all away out of sight. As if they have to work independently, you know. 
Right. Which is uh, strange. Yeah. It's not like you'd see in the movies with World War Two submarines or even British submarines. Now th this is totally, totally different. Yeah. Um, you know, there is no steering wheel, yeah, as they say. Yeah. The submarines on Russian submarines are the, the sorry the steering is levers, hydraulic levers, as opposed to like you see in the movies, yeah. you know, the steering wheel. So this movie stuff is complete, you know, Hunt for Red October. I'm sorry to hark back to that, but that's that's one of my reference points on Soviet submarines. But they're all together in that control room. But the reality was they would have been compartmentalized probably. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe, on, but on that class of submarine, I don't know, in the Russian Navy, maybe they changed it later. But mm. Certainly on these, these, the Whiskey class and the Foxtrots, it's all compartmentalized here. Mm. Uh, even the torpedo, sorry, the, the periscope, is not, as you see in the movies, it's not down with us here in the control room. You have to go up a ladder right. into the conning tower and the periscopes are up there. Whereas in the movies you see the you know, the officers and the captains are calling down the periscopes to look through in, in the control room, but they don't have that on this Russian submarine. It's up in the conning tower. Right. You can still call it a conning tower because there's navigation from up in the conning tower as opposed to... British submarines, and they call it the fin. There's no navigation from the fin. To right. Okay. John is just showing me the uh, map room. What's the equipment that's that's in here, John? Well, the only one that I really know quite well, because uh, I've been told by another Russian uh, officer from the Foxtrot-class submarines, is that we were lucky enough, by the look of it, to be left a very early satellite navigation system, which he believes in 1994 was still pretty much top secret and shouldn't have been left on board. Um, as you can see, it's about the size of a large suitcase. It's not like a tom-tom, isn't it? It's going to fit. No, absolutely it's not. It's not going to fit in your dashboard. It's not like the size of a fridge. <laughs> it's not going to go in your dashboard, is it? No. Um, but yeah, apparently top secret 94, this is how they looked. You know, it's, uh, uh, I haven't got the instructions for it, but... Uh, Maybe the Russians will want it back one day. Yeah. Who knows? You know, it's well, point. maybe it's still tracking its location. Could be, yeah. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> yeah. That, that's high tech, apparently, in yeah. this day. You know. Yeah. And so, looking above me here is the entry into the uh, the, the conning tower. Yeah. Yeah, so right at the top there, that would uh, be the exit and entrance. We can come in and out. So... And that is closed off at the moment, and it's sealed up from the outside to stop people getting in, uh, as opposed to wanting them to come in. But uh, ordinarily, that would have been a, a main thoroughfare out into the conning tower for the captains and the officers to go and look out when they're navigating through port, etc. Okay, and the, the periscope's up there as well. It's not actually in the control room. Uh, periscope's, yeah, the first step of ladders... Um, before you get to the second hatch, which leads to the outside, so the periscopes are in the next compartment above our head. Um, if you imagine um, the submarine, the, the pressure hull is a, is a shape of a cigar with a bubble on it in the middle, and in the bubble is where the uh, periscopes are. There's two periscopes. There's a, an attack periscope, and there's a search periscope. And that is uh, pretty standard on most submarines, I think. You don't normally see windows on a submarine. So what was what was the purpose behind those? Uh, well, those are windows only from on the surface. Remember, that if this is in the Baltic Sea and it's freezing cold, if they're, if they're up there navigating through a channel coming out of port, 
and it just pr provided some protection against the elements, really. Okay. Uh, but there's no windows. Once they submerge, that area is flooded. You know, there's no. Oh, really? There's not oh, a dry okay. area. No, no. That's that's a submerged area. Okay. Um, they would have stepped down into the submarine, shut the hatch, right, and then that area is completely flooded. Right. Okay. Yeah. Presumably because the glass wouldn't be able to withstand the uh, the yeah, pressures. Never, no, never, never, never take that pressure. Not that glass. You know, you've seen it. We've all seen Jacques Cousteau with his specialist submarines, but yeah. this, this wouldn't have done that. This is just for protection against the elements. Okay. Okay. Once again, it's a tight space, but you know, this is where everything happens. The captain's seat would have been here. He would have been sitting here, and then the ballast ballast tank control valves are all in here. The depth meters, the the steering mechanisms, obviously, so everything is in here. They could have controlled the whole thing from here. And then the engine telegraphs are behind the captain, close to hand. Three of those, obviously, for the three diesel engines. And then behind me, there's a one of the two lavatories. Um, no shower in this one. There's one shower on board, and that's at the other one. And then next to him is the map room. And then above that, there's a ladder to go up into the um, periscope room. Right. And with sorry, with the shower, um, would that have been just cold seawater, or was it heated? Um, from what I understand, they, they would have tokens for showers, and there wouldn't be many showers going, and it wouldn't be very often fresh water. It would be uh, heated through the pipes. They have a coil system where they'd, they'd heat up the water going into them, but it would be seawater. Right. Okay. okay. Right. We'll lead through now into more officers' quarters. Okay. And we have light. Yeah, back into the light. That's better. So these are the because that was the captain's quarters we were looking at down the. Uh, the captain's quarters we haven't got there yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, those were officers. These are more officers' quarters for dining and sleeping. As you can see, the so those turn into beds. There's two beds there. There's one right, and the flap lifts up. There's another bed. Absolutely luxurious when you think you know, it's not uh, independent bedrooms as such. This is. This is the sonar room. Right. Uh, it's about as far forward from the engines as you can get to avoid the noise of the engines interfering. Yeah. Um, quite a specialist job. Opposite is the captain's cabin because it's uh, probably needed. This is, this is like the, uh, the the windscreen of a submarine. This is how they, they see where they're going, isn't it? So yeah. captain would need to be involved here. And it's surprising, again, that all the equipment appears to be here. But I guess sonar is sonar to a certain level. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose in '94 when this was decommissioned, this may have been a little bit old technology then. And they would have said, "Wouldn't worry about leaving it on board," you know. So. But it's it's all there, so we could possibly start the engines and uh, navigate our way out. This is Captain. He does, and the captain is the only one who really does have his own cabin. Uh, not luxurious again, it's fairly standard size. It's probably a metre and a half by two, I would say. Uh, yeah. And it looks like he's a supporter of Dynamo Kiev. It looks like he's got the pendant, yeah. And bears. Yeah. Good old Russian bear there on the wall painting. Uh, but it, it's, uh, I suppose you could make it a little bit homely, but it's not uh, massively. Salubrious. Yeah. And the, the other odd thing that you would, don't normally see on submarines is 
It's all this wood panelling. Normally on submarines you wouldn't want fire mm. material. Fire materials are going to combust easily. Um, but for some reason in Russian submarines they had wooden panelling divided up all the quarters. Uh, you wouldn't get that. I don't think on British submarines, I don't think they have that. Now. Do you think that was some attempt at noise reduction, so it's less conductive of noise, particularly for the sonar room? No? I think it's just cheaper. <laughs> you know, they were building these things. They built 75 of these. Yeah. And knocking them out in the shipyards, and it's just cheaper way to build it, I think. Yeah. Um, not really noise, noise efficient, I don't think. You know, wood isn't particularly deadening, you know. They could have put all sorts of materials into deaden the noise, you mm. know. I think they've gone for the cheapest option, the easiest to make, replicate it every, every time they build a submarine, you know. Uh, but it's, it's a bit more like a World War II submarine in the way they've done it, as opposed to modern materials. You know. It is very much. I mean, I've been on a couple of World War II submarines, and it does sort of have that feel about it. Well, I think it stems because after the Second World War, the, the Russians got hold of the plans for the latest U-boats, and they incorporated those plans into their next design of submarines in the 50s, uh, leading on with that with the whiskey, whiskey class, which is the pre precursor to this. Uh, and the, pre the whiskey class, similar layout, and then you come into the Foxtrot, similar again. They didn't really change it. Uh, but going back, they just adapted the, the plans that they took from World War II. And this is very much more like a submarine you might see in Das Boot, you know, it's, uh, with all the pipes and the valves and all the switches all in your face, you know. Uh, and on the British ones, you tend to see that all hidden behind panelling, looking very neat and tidy, you know. But I think on the Russian ones, it's all the hand, and they're ready to grab hold of a spanner and tighten up the leaking pipe or something, you know. Uh, this is the, sorry, this is the. Uh, Sonar room's bed, once again, is about, what's that? It's about 30 centimetres yeah. wide by a metre and a half. That's his bed, you know. It's very a, short. Yeah, <laughs> short or very, very flexible. Yeah. So next step, we now lead into the um, forward torpedo room. Okay. Uh, we shall have a look at what we have in here. So now we're in the uh, the forward torpedo room. Forward torpedo room, yeah. This, this is obviously uh, the main area for armaments, if you like. There would have originally been another set of racks here. Um, so we have one rack on the right-hand side, which would have held three torpedoes. And then there would have been another set of racks on the left-hand side. And then you have the six tubes. Um, the racks on the left-hand side were removed for access reasons for tourism uh, to make some space so people could walk down into yeah. the submarine and look around you know yeah uh, but originally it would have been fairly cramped again in here a bit more uh cramped than we're seeing now then they also had as well as torpedoes they would have carried mines right sea mines they could have lo loaded them and fired them from the torpedo tubes as well and i understand that they would have had some low yield nuclear torpedoes I think on special occasions, if you like to call it that, they would load, if they felt there was a particularly threatening environment they were going into, uh, they would have loaded those on. They used them in the Bay of Pigs, um, where they had low-yield low nuclear torpedoes on board. Um, how often they use them, I don't know. Um, after, the, after the Bay of Pigs, they were, I don't think there was such a crisis again, I don't yeah. think, you know, the submarines. What, what sort of yield were those, do you know? 
Um, from what I've looked up, it was around about the same as a Hiroshima bomb, 12 megatons. Okay. Which I always thought was nuclear tipped, can't be that bad, you know. Yeah, yeah. But when I, when I looked it up and it said it's that big, I thought it was amazing to have that. Just on a torpedo, they could have fired it at a, a, a port, if you like, yeah. to destroy the port, or they could have fired it at a, obviously an aircraft carrier, it would have melted, disappeared. Um, but I, I was shocked by how much megatons it would have been, around about 12, 13, I think. Yeah. No, no, that that's that's huge. This, this particular torpedo, red and white, you may have seen some on the internet, there's photos of them. They're uh, practice torpedoes. So these would have been fired and recovered. Right. Um, this one's strange because it has English and Russian writing on it. Uh, because I, we believe they used to use them to train Libyan Navy, Indian Navy. So maybe they had the English writing on them to oh, okay. obviously help train train the sailors from those navies. Um, but all all the dials are in Cyrillic. I mean, yeah, I don't know what happened there. You know, maybe they had translators for those. You know, <laughs> it's strange that they have the torpedoes got Russian and English, but nothing else. Everything else is Cyrillic. You know, uh, maybe they had on board interpreters, but for some reason they put the English in. And do you know much about the history of this submarine as to where it was stationed and what operations it was on? Uh, we were given some information, not not a great deal. Uh, probably at the time, obviously, it's all top secret, but we've basically found out it uh, spent its early years patrolling with the Northern Fleet in the Baltic Seas. Then it was assigned down to the Mediterranean, and it, probably to do the training with the, the Libyans, maybe, you know. Uh, it spent quite a long time in dry docks and in uh, repair shops. Uh, wasn't at sea all the time. I was surprised. Maybe they obviously rotate them. Mm. I suppose if you've got 70 of them, you can rest them for a period of time and you know, send them out to sea again. Uh, but the majority of his operation was the Baltic Sea area, around the, the Northern Fleet, and then down into the Mediterranean. Uh, didn't go much further afield than that from what we know, but maybe it did, but we never saw any paperwork to say anything different. You know? yeah. uh, and, and when did this submarine arrive in the UK? It came to the UK in 1994. Uh, from what I understand at the time, uh, the Russians were selling off various military hardware that was redundant, you know, helicopters and planes and submarines, and they sold. But four of these Foxtrots went out, and one went to Long Beach, California, after a short stay in Australia. Uh, one went up to Canada, which is now in San Diego. One went to Zeebrugge, still there. And then there's this one which came to London, and then it went to Folkestone, Kent, and then we brought it here to the River Medway. Um, apart from that, there are a couple of other foxes on display, but they weren't sold in '94. They were either ex-Indian uh, Navy or ex-Russian Navy. Because yeah. I understand the original captain brought it to the UK. Yeah, he came with it when it came to the Thames Barrier for exhibition and uh, did some interviews, I think. And he, he came with it at the time with the Sea Tug uh, when it first arrived in London. Uh, that was at the Thames Barrier. And so how did you acquire this? Uh, we saw it. It was in Folkestone Harbour and uh, it had just been seized by um, the bailiffs for non-payment of harbour dues. And uh, we had a little walk around it, thought it was great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> got a little bit carried away. Um, probably definitely got carried away. And uh, we put a bid in and... Uh, we, I don't know whether the words won it, but we got it. And uh, so here we are with it still. Okay. Yeah. And and 
presumably it was towed here. It, it, you weren't able to bring it here under its own power. No, no, it's it's, it's only ever going to be towed now. It's uh, it's been decommissioned uh, to get it up and running and get get the permits to be able to sail as a submarine again would be quite a task. Although the, the Ukraine Navy did do that, and they about four years ago they got one up and running again, spent a few million on it. Uh, did sea trials, went to sea. Uh, they were using it in, in the Black Sea, and then I think the Crimea conflict, the Russians took mm-hmm. it, took it back. So it was still operational up to the Crimean conflict. Yeah, yeah, they they completely refurbished it and had it operational, and there's photos on the web of it diving and surfacing. Yeah, so it's uh, up and running. I wouldn't have fancied being on it, but uh, they had it up and running. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd imagine with this the same thing, you can throw money at it and you could get it running again, but. You'd have to be pretty enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what are your plans for the submarine in the in the future? Well, our um, plans are, as you've seen, we're, we're, we're quite busy doing the uh, replating the outside and painting, trying to get it looking like like it should be looking, and starting to get there now. It's starting to look like a operational submarine, if you like. Although it's a probably better paint job now than there was when it was in operation. Maybe <laughs> uh, uh, we are looking for somewhere to locate it. So we can show the public what we have. You know, it's, you know, you're about the Cold War. This is all about the Cold War, and this is an important part of history. You know, it's a, it's a shame for it to not be seen by the public and for people to understand what we're up against. You know, yeah. uh, it'd be great to have it back on exhibi- exhibition somewhere if we can find the right place. You know. So, if if people want to visit it now, can they? Uh, at the moment, we haven't got a, a scheduled plan of uh, visit days, if you like. But that's something we're looking at because we're getting lots of inquiries now. And uh, we just need to find the logistics of getting people out to the submarine uh, safely. We're in the middle of the river. It's not it's not a hazardous river, but still on water. So we have to be careful with transporting people across it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm working on that, and I'm sure we'll be able to do that in the near future. Hopefully uh, early spring next year we'll have some sort of program going. Well, do let us know, because I'm sure uh, there'll be a, a queue of people who want to yeah. come and have a look. Thank you very much. Yeah, that would be nice. We'd look forward to it. And... This is a bit of an off-beam question, but what's your favourite submarine movie? My favourite submarine movie is going to be Das Boot, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody's thinking well, almost is. A... And then after that, it's Hunt for Red October, you know. And Sean I have... Connery mangling that Russian. Yeah, imagine that. And then uh, after that, only because they filmed it on here, it would be Black Sea. That's uh, you know that was that was a movie filmed on here and. Uh, we enjoyed making that and spent some time and it sort of brought the submarine back to life. It was nice to see all the lights flashing and people running around as if there's uh, emergencies going on. It was good. I'm not familiar with that film. What, what's that film about? Uh, that was a film with uh, Jude Law and it was about uh, sunken gold on a submarine at the bottom of the sea, a Nazi submarine, mm-hmm. and a group of uh, desperate men who thought they could retrieve the gold by getting hold of an old Russian submarine and sailing out to the site of where the sunken gold was and retrieving it. And, of course, they all ended up fighting and killing each other uh, in the movie because they all got greedy. You uh, just ruined the end. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry about that, yeah. And uh, some did survive and some gold did come back to the surface, but it was loosely based on the there's a movie called The Sierra Madre, I think. Right. Men go crazy for gold and uh, end up killing each other. That's yeah. 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 It wasn't bad. 
Okay, so one one of the questions I often ask my guests is, if you could invite three people from the Cold War to have a few beers with, who would they be? A few beers with? Well, it's got to be an interesting person, right? So I'm going to go uh, from the Cold War. We'll go with Kennedy. I'm sure he's got a bit of a few tales to tell. He would have anyway. Importantly, for where we are, it's going to be Vasily Archipov, who was the man who saved the world by not firing these nuclear torpedoes during the Bear Pigs crisis. And then to uh, liven things up a bit, if we were all getting a bit dull and boring, we'd have uh, Jimi Hendrix. That's one hell of a trio. That's great. Quite a party. It'd be a bit of a party, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. I'd want an invite to that one. Have you had any uh, Russians visit the boat? Uh, yes, I've had, I've had a few Russians. I've had Russian news on you. Um, I did. I did two interviews with Russian news, NTV. Um, they run quite a nice story on the submarine, um, which was interesting because it all happened at the same time as that. Uh, the Salisbury. The thing. Salisbury thing, yeah. So <laughs> it was a big story, and they they quite like coming here to see one of their submarines. You know. Yeah. Thinking they're gonna. Yeah, that's, Wow. I can't find my photo of Porcello, but what was interesting with it, um, they set up here. Yeah. And uh, they turned that around. Mm-hmm. And white on the other side. And then they Skyped a guy in Moscow who was one of the officers on the Bay of Pigs crisis. Wow. They did an interview by Skype. You know, so yeah, yeah. It was a really interesting uh, way of doing it. So that should be on TV, I think. Coming up, hopefully, to show the whole series. Um, and it's specifically about the Cold War he's concentrating on. I think he's, he's gone to a lot of Cold War places, mm-hmm. and Hidden History, I think it's called, and he's gone to look at these places that were involved at the time of the Cold War. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, John, thank you very much thank for you. bringing me on here. It's been absolutely fascinating, and I overuse that word, but I really mean it. Good. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you had the same reaction. Most people have the same reaction. They all like it when they come inside and... Uh, I think from the outside, submarines tend to be a little bit plain looking. You yeah. know, they're, they're not like looking at surface ships which have all the guns and the radars and things sticking out, you know. Uh, but once you step down into the steps inside the submarine, it's, a, it's an eye opener. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And really appreciate your time. And there will be further information and photographs in the show notes as well. Yeah. There'll be details of that to follow. Well, that's the end of today's episode, but do listen to the end as there's an extra treat for submarine movie fans. There is a bumper amount of information in the show notes, including the photos I took on the day and various videos I have found of this submarine and also the same class of submarine at San Diego in the US. The show notes include the trailer of the film Black Sea, starring Jude Law, which was filmed on the submarine, as well as the trailer of probably my favourite submarine movie, which, if you haven't guessed already, is Hunt for the Red October. The show notes are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 35. If you like what you're listening to, do join our Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with listeners and guests. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. 
lastly if you like what you're hearing do leave reviews with your podcast provider or share us via social media it really helps us increase awareness of the podcast thank you very much for listening and supporting us it is really appreciated goodbye not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information